2: Hey, everyone. Thanks for downloading episode 101 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Before we get started talking about the Battle of Pea Ridge, we just wanted to remind y'all that the podcast website has moved to www.civilwarpodcast.org and that once you're there, you can also sign up to become a member and have access to a couple of extra episodes each month. In fact, the first members episode is already up there on the website.
2: And thanks to those of you who have already signed up to be members. And someone actually suggested we come up with a clever name for those of you who support the podcast by becoming members. Like, for example, Jimmy Buffett fans are known as Parrotheads.
0: Or Swifties are Taylor Swift fans.
2: And we have it from a reliable source that the supporters of the London-based Arsenal Football Club are known as Gooners.
0: And one more, and this is our favorite, Barry Manilow fans are known as Fanilows.
2: So in that great tradition, for those of you who become members of the podcast, we came up with the Strawfoot Brigade. And the story behind that is that during the Civil War, when raw recruits showed up, fresh from the farm, so to speak, some wouldn't know their left from their right. But they did know the difference between hay and straw. So in order to teach them how to march, their sergeant would tie a piece of hay to their left foot and a piece of straw to their right. And so the cadence for starting out marching would be hay foot, straw foot, hay foot, straw foot.
0: And so one name for a green recruit back then was straw foot. And so Rich and I thought the Strawfoot Brigade would be a neat nickname for all of y'all who support the podcast by becoming members.
2: So you can go to the new website and sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade for just $5 a month. And as Tracy said, the first members episode is already up and the next on the Battle of Pikachu Pass will be up this next week. Uh, Right now, our plan is to release new members' episodes around the 10th and 20th of each month. So there you go.
0: The Battle of Pea Ridge took place in northwest Arkansas in early March 1862, just up the road from my hometown of Fayetteville. Pea Ridge or Elkhorn Tavern, as it was also known, is a really interesting battle for a number of reasons. It's one of the rare major Civil War battles where the Confederates outnumbered the Federals. Also noteworthy was the ethnic composition of that Confederate force, as there was a substantial contingent of American Indian troops that participated in the battle. And then there was also an unusual amount of maneuvering and movement prior to and during the battle. In fact, Pea Ridge was one of the rare instances when one side had to completely change front as the Federal Commander had to turn his force completely around, from initially facing south to face northward.
2: At Pea Ridge, we'll encounter some familiar names, such as Sterling Price, Ben McCulloch, and Franz Siegel, and we'll also introduce some new characters into our story, like Samuel Curtis and Earl Van Dorn. But those already familiar names should sound familiar because we've already encountered them on the podcast when we were talking about what all was happening in Missouri after the start of the Civil War. And you guys will remember that discussion included the Battle of Wilson's Creek and the Battle of the Hemp Bales during the Siege of Lexington, Missouri. And really, all of that is relevant now because any discussion of the Battle of Pea Ridge even though the battle took place in northwest Arkansas. But any discussion of Pea Ridge really needs to start with what was happening up in Missouri, after those events we've already covered here on the podcast.
0: As y'all will recall, in spite of their victory at Wilson's Creek in southwest Missouri in August 1861, Missouri State Guard General Sterling Price and Confederate Army General Ben McCulloch had continued to squabble over strategy and other matters. And so after Wilson's Creek, McCulloch had taken his Confederate troops back to northwest Arkansas, while Price had taken his state guardsmen north to the Missouri River town of Lexington, where in September 1861, he had successfully laid siege to the isolated Union force defending the place. But soon afterward, when a strong federal column from St. Louis advanced against him, Price couldn't hold Lexington, and he was forced to withdraw back the way he had come to Springfield in the southwest corner of the state.
2: After withdrawing back to the southwest corner of the state, and while he was awaiting further developments, Price learned that Governor on the Run, Claiborne Fox Jackson, had assembled a rump session of the legislature in Neosho, and that pro-Confederate legislature had approved an ordinance of secession. The legitimacy of all this was sketchy to say the least, but it was enough to satisfy the Confederate government up in Richmond, and it added Missouri Star to the Confederacy's flag in late November.
0: Jefferson Davis's solution to the problem of the bad blood between Price and McCulloch and their reluctance to cooperate was to create a new Trans-Mississippi District and place a Confederate Major General over them both. The commander of this new military district would be a West Pointer whose resume included the professional military background that both McCulloch and Price lacked.
2: The new Confederate commander was Earl Van Dorn. In his book, the Battle of Pea Ridge, the Civil War Fight for the Ozarks, James R. Knight writes, quote, To most observers, Earl Van Dorn would have seemed the very picture of mid-19th century southern manhood. The cultured gentleman, the dashing cavalier, and the natural-born warrior all rolled into one. At five foot eight, with sandy hair and piercing blue eyes, he made a strong impression on the men he commanded, as well as on the many beautiful women who crossed his path, a fact that was not at all lost on him. Consequently, he had a well-earned reputation as an aggressive, some would say rash, commander, as well as something of a ladies' man.
0: Earl Van Dorn was born in 1820 in Mississippi. He grew up the privileged son of a wealthy planter, and as a result, he enjoyed, enjoyed superb social and political connections. Jefferson Davis was a neighbor and family friend. When the 18-year-old Van Dorn decided he wanted to be a soldier, his family's connections ensured he received an appointment to West Point. There, Buck, as he was known to his classmates, was not a model cadet. In 1842, he graduated fourth from the bottom of his class of 56, but still two places ahead of another cadet named James Longstreet. Besides Longstreet and Van Dorn, the West Point class of 1842 would produce 15 other general officers for one side or the other in the Civil War.
2: Van Dorn saw extensive service during the Mexican-American War, and in the fighting for the enemy capital, he was twice wounded. He was promoted to first lieutenant in 1847, and he was breveted captain and major. After the war with Mexico, Van Dorn served in the West. Promoted to captain in 1855, he served in the second cavalry on the Texas frontier under Albert Sidney Johnston and Robert E. Lee. In 1858, he was badly wounded while fighting Comanches. In June 1860, he was promoted to major. But when his home state of Mississippi seceded from the Union, Van Dorn resigned from the U.S. Army and was appointed a brigadier general of Mississippi state troops. Then, in March 1861, he accepted a commission as a colonel in the new Confederate Army. He was posted to the Department of Texas.
0: Van Dorn was promoted to brigadier general in June and to major general in September. After a brief stint in the East, he was assigned command of the newly created Trans-Mississippi District. But Earl Van Dorn was not Jefferson Davis's first choice. It was only after Henry Heath and Braxton Bragg turned down the appointment that the Confederate president turned to Van Dorn.
2: Arriving in Little Rock, Arkansas on January 29, 1862, Van Dorn assumed command of the new military district, and one of his first tasks was to mediate the long-running dispute between his two principal subordinates, McCulloch and Price. Once he got the two bickering officers to cooperate, Van Dorn wanted to take action to reverse the recent Confederate setbacks up in Missouri. In fact, Earl Van Dorn even had high hopes of crushing the Federals in Missouri so decisively that he could go on to take the biggest prize of all, St. Louis. After arriving in Little Rock on January 29th, Van Dorn spent the next three weeks planning for his big spring offensive that he hoped would carry him all the way to St. Louis. He informed Sterling Price, who was at Springfield, that the Missourians would be reinforced and that with at least 15,000 men, the Army would go on the offensive against the Federals on March 20th.
0: But then everything was changed by a message Van Dorn received on February 22nd. The message said that 10 days earlier, Price had abandoned Springfield and fallen back before an advancing Union force. In fact, Price and his state guardsmen had withdrawn from Missouri altogether and had fallen back all the way to northwest Arkansas. Price was now south of Fayetteville, settling into an encampment just a stone's throw from where McCulloch's Confederates had established their winter camp.
2: In his book, Knight explains that, quote, After the initial shock of the message, Van Dorn began to see this development as an opportunity in disguise. The Federals had unintentionally concentrated Van Dorn's forces for him by driving Price and the Missouri State Guard into Arkansas and into the arms of McCulloch's Confederate Army. The Federals now sat in camp about 15 miles north of Fayetteville, with only one road connecting them to their support back into Missouri. With the combined forces of Price and McCulloch, Van Dorn now had a chance to destroy that Federal Army. That would make him master of northwest Arkansas and southwest Missouri, and put him well on his way to his dream of capturing St. Louis." he made plans to leave immediately for the Confederate camps more than 200 miles away to lead his new army in person. End quote.
0: That a federal army was sitting in northwest Arkansas in early 1862 was mostly due to a notable command change that had occurred in St. Louis back in November. On November 19, 1861, Major General Henry W. Halleck had assumed command of the Federal's Department of the Missouri. Like Nathaniel Lyon and John C. Fremont before him, Halleck realized that he had to go on the offensive in Missouri in order to drive Sterling Price's ragtag army out of the state. Halleck's desire to drive the rebels out of Missouri as quickly as possible, though, was motivated by his wish to free up troops for projected offensives on the Mississippi, Tennessee, and Cumberland Rivers. Halleck realized that every Union soldier stationed in Missouri to counter-price and protect St. Louis was one less Union soldier that could be used in the upcoming river campaigns.
2: And we've backtracked in time, so the upcoming river campaigns we're speaking of here... Turn out to be Ulysses S. Grant's moves to capture Forts Henry and Donelson. Remember that at this point in the war, Grant is Halleck's subordinate.
0: Exactly. So, as long as Sterling Price and his state guardsmen were in Missouri, Halleck didn't feel he could take federal soldiers away from the state for operations elsewhere in the department. And so to solve this strategic dilemma, on December 25, 1861, Halleck placed Brigadier General Samuel R. Curtis in command of the new military district of southwest Missouri. Curtis's assignment was simple and straightforward. He was to launch an offensive and defeat, disperse, or destroy Sterling Price's ragtag force of rebels once and for all. Once Price was neutralized, Halleck could then take federal soldiers who were standing idle in the garrisons all across Missouri and send them to be used in operations elsewhere.
2: Halleck never really explained why he chose Curtis for such a critical assignment, but after his arrival in St. Louis, Halleck was no doubt impressed by Curtis's help in cleaning up the corruption and administrative mess left by John C. Fremont, Halleck's predecessor. Samuel Ryan Curtis was born in 1805 in New York, but when he was still young, his family moved to Ohio. He attended West Point and graduated in 1831, ranking 27th in a class of 33. After graduation, he was assigned to the 7th U.S. Infantry Regiment, but he resigned his commission after only one year of service and returned to Ohio, studied law, and was admitted to the bar in Zanesville. Beginning in 1837, however, he put his West Point education to good use and started a successful engineering career, including three years as the city engineer for St. Louis. When the Mexican-American War began in 1846, Curtis, who held a commission in the Ohio State Militia, became first the state's adjutant general and then colonel of the 3rd Ohio Volunteer Regiment. The Third Ohio didn't see combat, but Curtis did serve as military governor of several occupied Mexican cities.
0: Curtis went back to civilian life after the war with Mexico. In fact, he returned to practicing law after moving west to Iowa. In early 1856, he was elected mayor of Keokuk, and then later that year, in the fall, he won a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives as a Republican. He leaned toward abolitionism and was an early supporter of Abraham Lincoln. Curtis served in Congress until 1861.
2: After the start of the Civil War, Curtis helped equip and muster in Iowa's first volunteer regiments, and then the men of the 2nd Iowa unanimously elected him their colonel. He was prompt in marching his regiment to occupy the town of Hannibal, Missouri, at the request of Nathaniel Lyon, who commanded Union forces in Missouri at the time. The favorable attention he gained from that movement earned Curtis promotion to Brigadier General of Volunteers in August 1861, at which point he resigned from Congress. He spent most of the rest of the year assigned to John C. Fremont's headquarters in St. Louis. Curtis brought much-needed calm and order to the anxious city, and he also supervised the drilling of recruits at the nearby Jefferson Barracks. And it was in December, after Fremont's ouster, that new Department Commander Henry Halleck assigned Curtis to command the newly created military district of southwest Missouri with orders to launch an offensive and defeat, disperse, or destroy Sterling Price's ragtag force of rebels once and for all.
0: In their book, *P. Ridge, Civil War Campaign in the West, William Shea and Earl Hess write, quote, A reserved and rather formal Victorian gentleman, Curtis was not the popular image of a dashing military leader. He was 56 years of age in 1861, and his much younger soldiers considered him to be a fine-looking old man. Curtis was fastidious about his dress and carried out his affairs in a precise, methodical fashion. Beneath the stiff, fussy Victorian exterior, however, was an aging West Pointer who deeply desired military distinction but was far too proper to promote himself publicly or privately. Until being picked to command the district of Southwest Missouri, he had labored quietly at his desk in St. Louis, hoping his diligence would be noticed and rewarded by his superiors. The private Curtis was something of a poet as well as a warrior, while campaigning in Mexico and during the Civil War, he often wandered by himself for hours in search of wildflowers and wrote long letters to his family describing the people and places he had seen. His awkward prose reveals a sensitive and sentimental nature not usually associated with persons in the engineering and military professions, end quote.
2: Shea and Hess go on to explain that Curtis was tremendously excited about his new assignment, and he immediately left St. Louis to establish his headquarters at Rolla, the railhead that was the obvious starting point for any offensive into southwest Missouri. Curtis arrived in Rolla the day after Christmas with orders from Halleck in his pocket, but he away ran into a problem by the name of Franz Siegel. Siegel had been in command of all the federal troops assembling in Rolla, and when Curtis showed up, Siegel threw a hissy fit and resigned rather than be demoted to a mere division commander. Since many of the men in Rolla were German immigrants from St. Louis who were personally devoted to Siegel, his resignation was no small matter, and in fact became a full-blown political incident. But in the end, he was persuaded to withdraw his resignation and serve as Curtis's second in command. Curtis and Siegel worked together fairly well after that rocky start, but their relations were never exactly friendly, and their supporters, Curtis's who were mostly Iowans and Siegel's who were mostly Germans, formed two mutually antagonistic cliques within the small army of the Southwest, as Curtis's force was called.
1: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Meanwhile, Sterling Price had established an advanced position north of Springfield. But because of the growing union strength at Rolla, he gave up his forward camp and withdrew south to Springfield, arriving there on December 22nd. When the news of Price's withdrawal to Springfield reached the Federals, Halleck at first thought the rebels were retreating even farther south, and he ordered Curtis to send out a force of cavalry to harass the enemy. But it soon became apparent that Price was settling in at Springfield rather than retreating even farther south, so on January 13, 1862, Halleck ordered Curtis forward to pressure the rebels.
2: Over the next two weeks, Curtis advanced 60-some miles from Rala to Lebanon, marching along the Telegraph Road, which was the main route to Springfield and down into Arkansas. At Lebanon, Curtis organized the Army of the Southwest, placing the German-American units into two divisions, with the first division commanded by Colonel Peter Osthaus and the second division under Brigadier General Alexander Aspeth. Siegel was in overall command of these two divisions. And then Curtis, in addition to command of the army as a whole, kept two divisions of Midwesterners under his direct control, the third division led by Colonel Jefferson C. Davis and the fourth division under Colonel Eugene Carr. At Lebanon, the federal strength was just over 12,000 men and 50 pieces of artillery. In charge of Curtis's all-important supply line back to the railhead at Rolla was a captain here serving as a quartermaster but who would go on to earn some small amount of fame later in the war as a fighting general. His name was Philip Sheridan.
0: While Curtis was organizing his army at Lebanon, Price, 50 miles away in Springfield, watched the developments with growing dismay. Price didn't want to have to retreat south into Arkansas in the dead of winter, but he could muster barely 7,000 men and knew he had little chance of holding Springfield and southwest Missouri if the Federals made a determined advance. Unfortunately for Price, the Federals soon did indeed make a determined advance. In his book, The Battle of Pea Ridge, James R. Knight writes, quote, On February 10th, Samuel Curtis and the Army of the Southwest marched out of Lebanon, Missouri, on Henry Halleck's second offensive in just over a week. Eight days earlier, Halleck had unleashed Ulysses S. Grant and an army that would eventually grow to more than 25,000 on the Confederate forts on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. Now he was sending Curtis to rid Missouri of Sterling Price and his state guard. The stakes were high for Henry Halleck. Defeat of either of these armies would deal perhaps a fatal blow to his carefully constructed career. As he had told Grant, he now told Curtis, failure was not an option. End quote.
2: By February 12th, Curtis was only eight miles from Springfield, and Price, having waited until the last minute, hastily abandoned the town that night and slipped away, beginning a hundred-mile retreat back into the Boston mountains of northwest Arkansas. The Federals moved into Springfield and then rested all day on February 13th, but the next day Curtis set off after Price. From then on it was a race for the Arkansas border, some 60 miles away. As Price's force trudged along, few getting more than a couple of hours sleep at one time, the pace and the freezing temperatures soon took their toll, and many exhausted men simply fell out along the Telegraph Road and were picked up by the advancing Federals, or they went off into the woods where they froze to death. At one point, Curtis reported that he was finding, quote, more straggling prisoners than I know what to do with, end quote.
0: Finally, as Price's men crossed over into Arkansas, they began to encounter some of McCulloch's Confederate troops who were wintering in the area at Cross Hollow. These fresh troops from Arkansas and Louisiana took over rearguard duties from the weary Missourians. The next day, February 17th, the Confederates and some of the Missourians took up a blocking position along the Telegraph Road on some ground owned by a local farmer named James Dunigan. The resulting clash with the advancing Federals, known as the Battle of Dunnigan's Farm or the Battle of Little Sugar Creek, was the first Civil War engagement fought in my home state of Arkansas. At the end of some sharp fighting at Dunnigan's Farm, the Confederates withdrew safely down the telegraph road, and the Federals were content to let them go.
2: On the 18th, Ben McCulloch found Price, and the two men discussed the situation. As usual, the two officers disagreed about what should be done. Price wanted to make a stand and fight it out with the Federals then and there, but McCulloch thought they should withdraw farther south. The next day brought news that a force of federal cavalry had raided Bentonville in the rebels' rear, and that information brought Price around to McCulloch's view that they should fall back, and so on February 19th, the Confederates continued withdrawing southward down the Telegraph Road. As the rebels fell back through Fayetteville, making for McCulloch's main winter encampment south of the town, near Strickler Station, the military storehouses in Fayetteville were thrown open to everyone, soldiers and townsfolk alike. But when the exhausted and half-starved Missourians arrived, they didn't distinguish between army warehouses and nearby civilian stores and houses, and they looted one and all before continuing their hasty retreat to the south.
0: The next morning, some rebel cavalry returned to Fayetteville and set fire to several of the buildings that the military had used. But the flames quickly spread, and as the locals watched helplessly, soon much of the town was in flames. One resident recalled quote, the few citizens who remained could do little toward arresting the progress of the fires in so many different places at the same time, and when night fell a great portion of our town was a smoldering ruin.
2: All through the twentieth and twenty first, the rebel soldiers moved south into the Boston Mountains until they came to the Confederate winter camps around Strickler Station. And with that, the Missourians' long retreat was finally over. Meanwhile, just south of the Missouri border, Curtis had taken over the Confederate camps at Cross Hollow, and he learned that the enemy had fallen back south of Fayetteville. He sent out a column, 1,200 strong, on a reconnaissance down the Telegraph Road, and on February 23rd, those men reached Fayetteville. They remained in the town for two days before withdrawing back to Cross Hollow.
0: Samuel Curtis now had a decision to make. He had certainly accomplished his mission to rid Missouri of Sterling Price, but now he sat eight miles across the border in Arkansas at the end of a thin supply line almost 200 miles long, facing a combined Confederate army that outnumbered him by about 7,000 men. Curtis had to decide whether he should stay in northwest Arkansas and risk being cut off by a superior Confederate force or whether he should fall back to the relative safety of Missouri and declare his mission accomplished.
2: By the first week of March, Curtis had made his decision. He would not give up his foothold in enemy territory, and having made that decision, he knew the Confederates would have to react to it. And so the story we'll cover over the next couple, or several, episodes will be the story of the Confederates' reaction as Samuel Curtis and Earl Van Dorn battle for control of northwest Arkansas and southwest Missouri.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Battle of Pea Ridge, The Civil War Fight for the Ozarks, by James R. Knight.
2: This book is another offering in the History Press's Civil War Sesquicentennial series. In fact, Knight has written several books for that series, and the one on Fort Donelson was one of our past recommendations. But Knight mentions that this book is personal, since his paternal great-grandfather and namesake fought at Pea Ridge. So that's kinda cool. But as always, you can find The Battle of Pea Ridge, The Civil War Fight for the Ozarks by James R. Knight, and all of our other book recommendations if you head on over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
0: And one of the features on the new website is a page where we've compiled all of the book recommendations. So rather than searching through all of the old posts, you can simply look at the top of the home page where it says book recommendations and click on it and you'll find every one of our book recommendations going all the way back to episode number one.
2: And don't forget that you can go to the website and sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. And for $5 a month, not only will you be supporting what we're doing here with the podcast, but you'll get two extra episodes to listen to each month. And we want to thank some of you who have already done that, like Rob, Mark, Doug, and Mindy.
0: And Adam, Michael, Bradley, and Lorna.
2: And Ethan, Jared, Michael, and my mom and dad. And also thanks to Roderick M. over in the U.K. for his donation this past week.
0: So thanks, y'all. Rich and I appreciate the support and encouragement.
2: All right. So one last reminder that the new website is civilwarpodcast.org. And with that, we'll say thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We'll continue with Pea Ridge next week, but until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.